broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Investor Exchange. The latest until the next one, that is. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Joining me on my left is Joel Hewish. Good morning, Louis. Joining me on my right is Brett Dickinson. Hey, mate. How are you? Doing well. Yeah, good. Excellent, excellent. And morning, listeners. Yes, mm. thank you. Or afternoon, whenever you may be tuning in. Yeah. That's the that beauty too. of a podcast. Yep. Wow. Listen to it anytime. Yeah. Exactly. Or uh, just before bed if we're putting you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we're a bit more interesting than that. <laughs> in what way are you implying we put people to sleep? <laughs> Soothing voices. That, that we, must be what yeah, we, we can put you to yeah. sleep. <laughs> All right. Well, look, if everyone didn't have enough political fatigue... <laughs> Brett, you're coming back to us with more. Yeah, well, we, we couldn't escape it for one more week. And look, there'll, there'll be more stories that flow on, obviously, in the, in the wake of the coalition's re-election. Um, but the, the local government, or the, the Labor government here for the state of Victoria, uh, held off on, on doing their state budget until after the election. Right. Uh, and so they released it yesterday here in Melbourne. Okay. And there's a few things there. So, look, I'll... I'll, I'll focus on a few of the property things in a minute, but I'll just give the high-level information of what the, the main features of the budget were. Yeah, too. Okay, so they're forecasting a surplus of a billion dollars for 2019-20. So right. that sounds okay. positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That they believe he's going to grow to $1.5 billion the following year, $3.9 billion the year after, and to be $4.9 billion in 2022-23. Really? So, right. That's on labour law. Yeah. Well, and it's only a forecast. <laughs> let's, let's wait and see the reality. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you really think, Joel. <laughs> but uh, in parallel with that, the balance sheet uh, is going to go the other way. So they're saying net debt, which is projected to reach $22.8 billion this year, is likely to reach... 55 billion by 2022 23. Ah, that sounds better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 no. I'm actually joking. okay with that. I'm, I'm talking tongue in cheek. Yeah. I know where it's going. Yeah. yeah. But I think the reason behind that debt's actually a good thing. I mean, most of it is they're borrowing for the infrastructure, yeah. big projects, and that's a lot of jobs. And we need it. We, we need do it. need it. Yep. Yeah. Right. So they were the big headline figures. Uh, in regard to property, though, there's a big hole in the budget because of, obviously, the recent downturn means lower lower um, property prices and less transaction volumes means less stamp duty. Right. So based on that, they're saying that their revenue is down by what they forecast to be approximately $5.2 billion over the next four years from that particular hmm. issue. Interesting. Mm. So that's a big hole that they're trying to fill. So they've looked at a couple of ways they can get that back via the same property market. Uh First one they're going to do is they're going to raise the overseas purchases um, stamp duty. Mm. So they're okay, going to put really? that from 7% to 8%. Wow. Mm. Uh, and then they're also going to hit foreign owners. So if you're an owner and you're not a, uh, an Australian resident, you've got an absentee owner tax that's going to rise from 1.5% to 2% from right. the 1st of January. Okay. And this is one that is an interesting one. Uh, 
if you're a homeowner or a property owner and you've got a vacant block of land, you're now going to be hit with uh, land tax where you otherwise wouldn't. Oh, now, really? most of the circ- yeah, most of the circumstances here. Imagine people that might have a tennis court beside their house. It's on a separate title. Right. So what they're saying, if you've got separate titles and there's not a dwelling on it, we're going to hit you with land tax for that. Now, oh. is that? going to come in effective for those people who own their properties today or is that uh, no, I, no. I, I would assume there's going to be probably a January 1 deadline there isn't yeah, a date okay. listed with that yeah sure but I thought this is interesting because there's <clears throat> there could be a few people that have maybe subdivided their house or you know their blocks in the view of maybe building something on the back so mm. straight away that second block is going to be uh, going to be hit with land tax whereas in the past if it was your principal place of residence even if it was over multiple titles you weren't so it was exempt yeah. So that's a change. Okay. My, my question there is, though, is, is it generally going to happen like what they would typically do with most of these new tax rules that come in? Is, is that, you know, if you've already bought the property and you've already subdivided, then, you know, and you've done it before this prior date, we're going to grandfather that? I'm, yeah. I'm not sure that's the kind of tax, uh, this is the kind of tax that that type of grandfathering would apply to. Yeah, I don't think so either. Right. I, I think these types of taxes tend to... Uh, come in on a certain date uh, they'll they'll give a certain leeway period but they won't grandfather it permanently mm. I, I don't think so either and, and look because the budget only came out yesterday there's there's not a lot of commentary and, and clarification on some of these things obviously mm. that'll come out over the next few days as people dissect it uh, but yes yeah, so currently all they're saying there's about 1700 metropolitan Melbourne property owners that are facing this circumstance oh wow okay so it's yeah essentially sounds like they are talking yep. about it coming that in straight just, away yeah so they're going to say mm. okay well you can cons- so if if you are someone that uh that has a principal place of residence that is over more than one title if you want to avoid the land tax issue you can consolidate titles you can go to the titles office right. and ask to have them consolidated into one mm. okay. uh, and that would avoid it now there's a cost associated with that but it's probably less than the land tax but again you'd need to have a good look at the circumstances and yeah see. right so that was an interesting one. I thought that's a bit bizarre, but obviously yeah. they're looking to to make up the shortfall of stamp duty wherever they can. Yeah, I've I've heard uh, some commentary that suggests that state governments are now looking to move away from uh, stamp duty and move it more to like a US based tax Land system tax. where yeah property where taxes. property taxes yeah. yeah where it's more of a recurring revenue stream mm. for them rather than transactional based. Yep, I I don't know whether or not that's gathering momentum, but I've certainly heard it being. Um, mm. discussed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yep. been raised. I've heard that as well. I, I don't think there's any groundswell for it to happen anytime soon. No. But that oh, doesn't well, mean it The can't. population won't like it. Mm. No. But at the end of the day... But we don't like stamp duty either. Yeah, we don't like stamp duty <laughs> either, <laughs> but we cop it. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, it's an unpleasant thing, but it, it makes more sense mm. yeah. uh, than, than the current system. Uh, to, to charge it as a transaction cost, I think, is... Yeah. Um, is is strange when you consider if you thought let's redesign the whole system from scratch yeah. charging per transaction is is strange no you, yeah. would, you wouldn't do it would you because you're no. not matching your, your receipts with your expenses mm. no that's right and the way they could bring it in I think is if they allowed the property tax to be uh, to be levied but not payable immediately Mm. So create a debt against that house. So for people who are already living in a house and have done for 20, 30 years, you can now start charging the property tax, but it's only payable when that person sells eventually. 
Mm. Does that make sense? So does it sort of sit there with like a liability of your mortgage? You can't exchange until it's paid. Correct. That's right. So so if it ta- if it's two years until you sell that property, well then you've got two years worth of land tax to pay. Then when you buy the next property, well then you pay your property tax every year. Mm. Uh, but if you don't sell for ten years or twenty years. Uh, you, you haven't paid the property tax, but then you've got 20 years worth of property tax to pay when you sell the property. That and could be a way to phase in well, and the property tax system. Well, gain, it just comes out of whatever profit you make. Yeah, and we're either talking about uh, gains on properties or we're generally talking about deceased estates as well. Yeah. People that will just sit in their houses forever, the only way they'll move out mm-hmm. is uh, in a box. Yep. I would hope that if they went down that pathway that it would just be on transactions that would happen after a certain date would no longer be levied stamp duty and it would now attract just a property tax. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I, I think that's the only way it would I would hope that that would be the sensible. sensible. Yeah, yeah. One one would have to replace the sensible other. Sensible yeah. government. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, now... Coming back to the um, the foreign investors, so raising it from seven to eight percent seems like you know a pretty drastic move. And look, I'm a bit on the fence with this for two reasons. Firstly, it's basically where New South Wales are already at. So mm-hmm. if you okay. if you're buying property from overseas in New South Wales, you're already paying the eight percent. It hasn't been a big deterrent. On the other side of the equation um, is the population growth. So Victoria's population is growing at around three thousand people per week. Per week, around one hundred and fifty thousand right. per annum. Jeez. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, with that, if we're going to stop foreign investors from buying property, you know, we're, we're hurting local investment. We're hurting the ability to, to give the supply to those tenants that may want property as renters. Mm. So I'm not convinced it's, it's the best thing for our property market. Not sure what the impact will be because at the moment, you know, the offshore buyers aren't as prominent as they were a while ago. So it may not really have a big impact in the short term. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the one about the 1,700 metropolitan property owners with this consolidating land tax titles, I'm not convinced it's a great move because it's not going to raise a whole heap of money. Like if they're saying there's a $5 billion shortfall, it's going to raise maybe $40 million if they implement it. Right. right. Okay. So right. it's not, not a big one and it's creating it, a headache. Yeah, I don't think it's a big one and people have a path to get around it. Mm. So, oh, okay, I can pay the tax or I can consolidate titles. Yeah. Okay, I'll consolidate titles and it won't raise the tax revenue. Yep. So I'm not actually sure what it's going to achieve from a planning point of view other than disincentivising um, maintaining subdivided properties. Mm. And subdivided properties are more likely to lead to more dwellings. That's right. Which is helpful for the overall town planning side of it. Well, maybe what they're also thinking is it might force people to get active on, on vacant lots and either sell them or put property on them. Mm. Yeah, that's true. You know, here in Australia, we, we tend to sort of treasure our real estate. It is Absolutely. a national pastime, right? Mm. But um, you know, we've been quite active in the US real estate market and they don't have really too many restrictions on foreign investors buying their real estate. Uh, where I think here there seems to be a bit of a fear that uh, because we are a smaller country and we've got much more populous nations on our doorstep that could potentially, you know, if open slather was, was allowed, could possibly end up, you know, pushing up property prices significantly or at least, you know, buying a lot of the property that we have here. Yep. Um, that there, I think we have this year around the foreign investor buying real estate or the foreign buyer, which doesn't tend to exist in in, uh, in the US, which you know doesn't seem to sort of have that same fear perhaps. Mm. I know that if you look in New York, I can't remember what the what the number was exactly, but it was it was staggering. It was like something like 
two thirds, three quarters of all Manhattan real estate is owned by foreigners. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is. Yeah. yeah. It is. Compare that here. Don't, don't quote me on the numbers exactly, but it was it was it, it was, was enormous. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So look, I'll, I'll touch base on some of the other significant um, parts of the budget. Uh, so the the winners were also public transport. So okay. there was a fair bit uh, of money going towards upgrading a couple of the train lines, mainly the Sunbury line, $2 billion to, okay. to upgrade that. So that's a significant amount of money. Good for them. Yep. Uh, Ten more of the E-class trams are going to be put into this into the Metropolitan Tram Network. Okay. Cost Lovely. of $160-odd million. Okay. Uh, a loser was anyone looking to buy a luxury car. They're going to increase the taxes on luxury cars. Oh, okay. So dutiable value on those is going up significantly. Right. Uh, now, obviously, given that the coalition were recently elected and we've got a Labor government here in Victoria, there is a bit of argy-bargy between the two. And, and of course, when they release their budget as they are now, they're going to they're take the odd pot shot. Yeah, yes. Sure. So, of course, Premier Daniel Andrews has said that Labor had promised billions more for infrastructure if they had have been elected than the coalition at the federal level. Mm. And so he's saying that's money that Victoria now don't get delivered. Uh, right. And he instead said that the re-elected coalition government is offering $4 billion to build the East-West Link that was quashed years ago when, yeah. when the yeah. government... Uh, and, of course, Mr Andrews is refusing to accept it. Mm. Right. Of course, okay. of course. So the games continue. Yeah, the games continue. Yes, yes. I, I heard a federal politician uh, saying, well, why would Victoria knock back a free road? Hmm. Don't know. Uh, but then the argument would be, actually, why would Victoria knock back... 10% of a free road because yeah. 4 billion would, would build about one tenth, one tenth maybe an eighth yeah. right mm. so well, well, considering the Labor government basically tore what, up a billion dollars when they were elected and decided not to proceed yeah. what, what is the Andrews government subjection to the East West Link what, uh, is there is there a my opinion on this and I, I guess was, was if you look back at when they were elected that was one of the biggest promises they made was that they wouldn't build that and they'd do the railway level crossings. Okay, so it was, yep. it was so taking I think it's money more their election promise. Okay, yep. right. Yeah. Because yeah. it is needed. It's going to happen at some point in our time. And I think they said that. They mm. said, look, this project will happen one day. The East, East West Link. East West Link yeah. will happen. To. It's just down the list of all these other things for, to, okay. for, for the amount of uh, time savings on, on commuters uh, and the movement of goods around the city. Uh, the level crossing removal project was was going to get more bang for the buck. Mm. Right, yeah. And the Metro the Tunnel is, is one of their bigger ones the Metro at the Tunnel, yeah. Which uh, apparently also, when mm. uh, when the coalition were re-elected, there was a $2 billion promise that the Labor government were going to give to that. But mm. obviously, Victoria's just got to fund that themselves now, which yeah. is probably part of that $55 billion of debt. Of yeah, debt. yeah, that's yeah, right. right. But that's and Tunnel is still being built. Yes, yeah, so that's right it's now. going ahead regardless. Yeah. Yep. So that, that will connect with the east-west link. Mm. At some point in time. At some At point some in time. Point. Yeah. That's right. So we're getting these little Come back in 20 years and we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. we just got to get there. It's all going to happen yeah. over And decades. we'll have the rail loop and we'll have the, you know, the western ring road connection down to the east link. And yep. maybe even one out to the airport by then. That's too. right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep dreaming. Guys, what are we going to complain about when we're retired? <laughs> oh, we'll find something. We'll have nothing. I know. The neighbours. We won't be able to complain about public transport we won't be able to complain about the weather because it's going to be 10 degrees warmer yeah true yeah there'll be nothing left nothing left 
Oh, jeez. So, Brett, any other insights from the uh, state budget? Oh, look, there, there was a few other parts that I didn't really look deeply at. Things such as there was a significant amount of money for healthcare, some some hospital upgrades and, and increases, and also apparently a big dental plan. I saw something on the news, but I didn't wasn't really paying attention. Apparently, there's a, a few hundred million dollars that are being rolled out in, I think, mobile vans that are going to go and give dental care at, at schools. Okay. okay. Fair All enough. right. You know. Uh, Typical with Labor, they always do look after, you know... Teeth. Well, health and welfare is a, is a priority, so you're, you're bound to see some part of the budget focused on, on public health. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Got to have the teeth and, allegation. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Thank you, Brett. But I'm sure over the next week, more and more of it will be published and more and more opinions will be... Scrutinised and, yeah, yeah this no and that. Yep, yep. Very good. Thank you very much, Brett. Sure. We'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Welcome back, listeners. Now, Joel, you've travelled internationally recently, haven't you? I have. You yes. have, all right. Yes. Uh, but you're looking to expand the amount of overseas investigations. We are, yeah. Look, I, and this is actually uh, something that popped up today on Bloomberg, um, that the Australian superannuation fund, oh, sorry, sorry, Australian super, the, uh, the largest superannuation fund in Australia, um, it currently manages around about $155 billion worth of assets in Australian dollars or $108 billion in US dollar terms, has announced that it plans to expand its offices in New York and London to increase its global exposure and access to um, greater access to foreign markets. Now, it's probably a case that uh, Australian super is so big that it's uh, now running out of uh, investable opportunities here in Australia, so hence, uh, henceforth, it's a, it's global expansion. But it got me thinking about just sort of the advantages of thinking over about thinking about investing overseas, and it ties in quite nicely with some of the changes that we're making here at UGC, uh, where we have been big advocates of of investing in foreign companies, but we've traditionally done that primarily through the U.S. stock market. Now, the U.S. stock market today has, it represents anywhere between sort of 45, 50% of uh, total glo- global equity market valuations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Australia, and the Australian equity market uh, represents just about 2% of the total global equity market valuation. Just a drop in the ocean. Just a drop in the ocean, that's right. And, uh, and even though the U.S. Uh, is, a, is a major large market, um, you know, we can still get access to some really great foreign businesses that aren't US companies. So in fact, in our portfolios, we have a couple of Brazilian companies, we have a Canadian company, we have um, uh, some Chinese and other Asian companies that are listed on the on the US stock market. But we made a strategic decision and a business decision uh, and finalized that earlier this year to um, 
expand our horizons to go into direct markets into South Africa, South America, places such as Brazil, uh, expand into North America, places such as Canada uh, and Mexico, uh, and open up markets in Asia as well, where we'll be investing directly in Asia, places like Singapore and Hong Kong and, and Tokyo and Japan, um, as well as Western European markets like the United Kingdom and uh, other places like Germany and France, perhaps. We'll see what happens there. <laughs> this, is, this is really branching out. It is. So our UGC investors will no longer just have Australian or US-listed uh, stocks in their portfolio. Over time, we'll probably add um, uh, companies that are invested or are trading where their shares trade on other markets outside of those two uh, large countries, mm. out of those two markets. Okay. And, and Joel, what's your rationale behind that? Yeah, the rationale really is that, uh, look, we, we've identified the fact that, um, that, look, really Australia has a couple of major flaws with its stock market, uh, hence why when you're running such a highly selective investment approach as per what we do here, the opportunity set to invest in such companies that we look for is pretty minimal at any one point in time. So um, we needed to expand initially into the United States, but what we're finding is that, okay, well look, during this cycle, the US has really been the leader of the recovery out of the GFC. And, and that's largely been on the back of industries such as high tech, um, you know, biotech, healthcare, these types of innovative industries that are, are really seeing, you know, phenomenal growth. But there is an emerging power in Asia, uh, not just China, but we are seeing that uh, Asia is more broadly, Southeast Asian economies as well as uh, Northeast Asian economies or Northern Asian economies, are having much more influence on innovation, technology, uh, manufacturing, robotics. Um, and while the US offers plenty of opportunity, uh, there is a huge opportunity set going forward over the next decade to 20 odd years that we could completely be missing out on if we just keep our focus mm -hmm. so narrow. Mm. So um, with the Australian economy, we, or with the Australian stock market, we tend to find that our stock market ties in a lot more heavily into the fortunes of the Australian domestic economy. Okay. And that's largely a, 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 a reality based around the fact that some 35 to 40 percent of the Australian stock market is made up of financials mm. uh, where we have the banks, banks and the superannuation insurers. funds that yes. you know feed into fund managers and, and the like as well yep. insurers uh, and resources is also a major uh, materials basic materials um, is also a major industry on the Australian or major sector on the Australian stock market represents around about 15 percent at this point in time so those two industries alone are more than half? So those two industries alone are more than half mm. at the moment. It represents probably somewhere around about sort of 50 to 55% of the Australian equity market valuation today, where industries such as um, biotechnology and, uh, and information technology are, are sort of around that one to less than 1%. Right, wow. So, you know, we are in an innovation uh, cycle right now and uh, new technologies and the internet and the internet of things and cloud computing and uh, artificial intelligence and uh, mm. quantum computing and all of these different uh, um, new technologies and advances, are, 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 you know, are there to be taken advantage of for investors. Um, but we just don't seem to have enough of an opportunity set to take advantage of those major trends. Mm. Uh, and funnily enough, 
We're seeing that happen in pockets in Western Europe. We're certainly seeing it happen in Asia as Asia starts to become a, a major leader in these industries. The US will always have that footprint, so we're not abandoning the US by any stretch. Mm. But, um, uh, and we've also got the, uh, the development of, uh, of, of emerging economies such as Brazil and India, which is looking quite fascinating at the moment as well. So, so the opportunity to be able to apply our very tight risk management and stock selection uh, criteria to a global, um, a global investment uh, universe uh, is, is really too attractive to pass up at this point in time. And yeah. we do know that while the US has led this cycle, uh, the US doesn't always lead the cycle and, and it oscillates between sort of emerging com- uh, economies versus as, uh, as developed economies. Mm. So we're excited about the future and uh, and I think that there's probably uh, something in that that Australian Super also saw as well. Yeah, obviously. But yeah. Australian Super have only gone to Europe, or as in the UK and North America. They haven't looked at Asia as a... Well, uh, I, I can't comment on that because there wasn't enough uh, of a uh, there wasn't enough flavour around uh, around those intentions in the article. But it was just consistent with uh, you know with w- what we see happening in Australia, where you know the opportunity to get overseas and and really try and find those uh, those new emerging markets and opportunities. I, I can provide some guesses though. Uh, looking at Australian Super's um, default investment option, uh, which probably 98% of their members have. Uh, so the vast majority of their money would be placed with a certain as- asset allocation. And Australian Super's objective is to only have 22% of their members' money invested in Australian shares. Mm. Right. Less than a quarter. Uh, mm. Less than a quarter. 34% in international shares. Uh, and, and I think Australian Super and the industry funds uh, recognised pretty early on that to get better returns, they need to be looking at other types of projects uh, and they really got their returns from infrastructure projects, uh, good choices in direct property investments uh, and and other things as well. So their allocation has 7% of their funds in direct property, 12% of their funds in infrastructure. Now, if you're talking about a 150 something billion dollar fund, you're Mm. trying to get $15 billion of that uh, or more into infrastructure projects. Mm. Got to be big projects. So they got to be big projects, yeah. and there's not many. Uh, uh, there's not many of them in Australia. Mm. So that's why they'd be looking overseas. Now, not only that, but they have an allocation of four percent uh, and a range of up to ten percent in private equity. Right, so up to fifteen billion. So up to fifteen billion in moment. their in their mandate to go into private equity opportunities, mm. and and that it those private dealings, New York and London would be where it's at. Yep. Yeah. See, one of the uh, one of the other themes that that uh, I've been watching closely is that, you know, Australia has tried to diversify its export markets and and its export of uh, of, of what it sells overseas, uh, but still after twenty years, it's failed really to change the mix. It's still really today eighty percent of our exports are commodities-based exports, mm. where only 20% is really around services, um, and services including financial services and... Uh, education was a big focus for a while. And education, that's yeah. right. Mm. So, um, and, and it, But we haven't really been all successful in, in all that successful in, in trying to broaden that spread of what we're exporting overseas, and hence, typically, uh, that means that even if our export market 
um, is tied into commodities and our local market is, and our local shares are tied into really service companies or consumption-based companies that are really fueled by the domestic economy. You've really got to um, try and get out of Australia to try and find some diversification. Mm. Uh, Joel, the idea that comes to my mind is by being exposed to different countries, more than two countries, if you're only exposed to one country, then you're subject to the cycle of that country. Even if you're invested in good shares that are insulated, you're still in that share market. And if the share market's going down, you might be invested in an insulated company, but Mm -hmm. the price of your share can still come down. Mm -hmm. So by having the US market there, well, now you've if, if the Australian cycle is down, well, then maybe the US cycle is up. Correct. And you can go that way. But then if the US cycle is down uh, and the Australian cycle is not uh, not certain or you don't want to be 100% in Australia, mm-hmm. well, now you've got these other markets, uh, these, these other established uh, economies where you can get in touch with their cycles Absolutely. and invest part and, and move the funds to where the... Uh, not only the businesses, but the cycles and the fortunes of those economies are are just differently placed. And and put it this way, um, I've seen plenty of uh, academic studies that indicate that somewhere around about 50% of Australian households spend, sorry, about 50% of household expenditure in Australia is spent on products and services that are actually produced by companies that aren't Australian. So if you think about, you know, the products like, you know, Kleenex toilet paper or or uh, Colgate toothpaste, or mm. the mobile fuel that you put in your car, or Netflix count. Ne- Netflix, <laughs> Netflix, yeah. yeah. Um, Apple, yeah. All, all you know, if you think about these consumer products that mm. we consume every day as Australians in order to survive and run our daily lives, these are produced by companies that, um, with their products, we take for granted every day. But they're produced mm. by companies that aren't Australian. So. So even if it's got Australian made on the label, it can still be owned offshore, can't mm, it? That's right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Look at every News Corp uh, um, uh, newspaper and, and website and uh, TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, it, they originated from Australia, uh, but it's actually an overseas company. Mm. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, mm. so it's just an interesting uh, theme that I think that uh, more and more, uh, as technology breaks down the walls of... Um, you know, and the barriers to, to move internationally, um, that uh, international investing should become a much more considerable part of, uh, of a prudent investor's approach. Uh, and we're even seeing now that the Chinese stock market has uh, opened up its doors to allow retail investors to invest in uh, China A shares. Um, so, you know, the, it, it, the world is continuing to become more and more tied in and more and more global. Uh, and retail investors should take advantage of that. So is it difficult to access those stocks overseas if you're an Australian resident? No, many brokers these days actually offer access to global stock markets. Um, so we, we traditionally here in Australia, we'd, you know, if you're, a, if you're an investor in shares, you'd typically open up a brokerage account and, and probably up until about five or seven years ago, most of those brokerage accounts would only let you trade in Australia. But there's many, many platforms now. Usually these are non-advice uh, are brokerages like um, uh, Open Markets, Comsec, um, Saxo yep. Capital Markets, Interactive Brokers, these types mm-hmm. of platforms that have now 
entered into Australia and are offering Australian investors easy ability to be able to access these same markets. Right. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that international investing doesn't come with its own risks and own challenges. You need to identify you know, certain tax rules that might be different. There might be different ways in which um, uh, different countries tax certain receipts of dividends or interest or however it might be. And you've got to pick the right stock. And you've got to pick the right <laughs> stock as well. Yeah, and that, yeah. that requires access to greater information. Mm. Um, but uh, certainly, um, you know, it, it, op- it opens up a, an enormous amount of new and exciting opportunities and new markets that we traditionally haven't had access to here in Australia. And I think that that's only going to be a good thing for investors uh, if harnessed well. That's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Look out for those returns from now onwards. Well, it is United <laughs> Global Capital. So yeah, it certainly it is. is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very good. Thank you very much, Brett. Sure. We'll be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation, and self-managed superannuation funds risk management, estate planning, and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03-8657-7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, now, if you know what your calendar says, you would know that we're uh, in the last month of the financial year. Yeah, we are too, aren't we? Exciting times. Uh, as of recording, we're only days away from the 1st of June, which means tax time. Yeah. Yay! Awesome. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> How exciting. Uh, it makes it a very busy time of year for us because we are doing all of our end of financial year strategies uh, and lots of people asking the questions uh, and making sure that their, uh, their tax affairs are well taken care of to maximise their deductions. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to the top deductions in Australia, what do you think the top four tax concessions are? Mm. Negative gearing on real estate. <laughs> Negative gearing on real estate is actually not the number one. Number one. Okay. Capital gains tax concessions? There you go, Brett. Capital gains tax uh, concessions. Right. So, firstly, the, uh, the, the cost of not charging capital gains tax on the family home uh, is the top tax concession. Mm. Right. Top in terms of volume or just dollar value? Do- dollar amounts. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then the 50% uh, discount on capital gains tax right. is the second. Mm. Rightio. Uh, so superannuation tax concessions are the uh, are, are number three and four for two different types of concessions. Uh, one is to do with the tax rate on super, sure. uh, and two is the ability to uh, to put money into super. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so how do we maximise this for people? Um, what we really focus in on at the end of financial year is the ability to use personal deductible contributions mm. into super. How do you put more money into super 
from the money that you've got from your income or that's currently sitting in your bank account, the free cash that you've got. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a few years now, we've had the additional ability to put cash that's in your bank account into super and claim a tax deduction on it. Going back a few years, you had to make a salary sacrifice arrangement through your employer mm -hmm. and they had to deduct it from your pay slip every fortnight or month, which made it hard to do the end of financial year planning because yeah. if, if it gets to the last month of the year, well, maybe you've only got one or two paychecks left and you're trying to salary sacrifice ten or twenty thousand yeah. dollars into super, you, you might not have. You probably don't have that amount of earnings in a month, mm. uh, and probably can't uh, afford to put your entire wage into super. Mm. But what we can do now is any money that's in your bank account, you could uh, draw on debt to make the one-off super contribution, uh, and then repay that debt over time later on. Doesn't matter where the cash comes from, if you put that cash into your super fund you can get a tax deduction on it, up to a cap. Up to a cap, and what's the cap? The cap is $25,000. And uh, salary sacrifice, superannuation guarantee contributions all count towards that cap as well. They all count towards it, that's right. So you need to be careful of how much your employer has paid. Uh, you need to add that towards the, the full amount of the cap. Mm -hmm. So generally, here's what you're gonna have to do. You're gonna have to figure out how much has already been paid into your super fund. And the best way to do that is to phone your super fund and tell them what you're trying to do. Tell them that you're trying to put more money into super. And there's two things to work out. How much has already been paid into super and how much more might be paid in the remainder of the financial year. Because if your employer is gonna make one more contribution uh, on the 29th of June, mm. well, that's going to count towards the cap as well. So you don't want to use up the whole 25000 and then have your employer put the last contribution the on top. What happens if you exceed the cap? Okay, it's, not a, it's actually not a big drama if you go over the cap. What happens is the ATO will write you a letter saying you've gone over the cap. Uh, you need to pay the amount of tax that you would have paid anyway if you'd just taken the money as regular income. Oh, okay. So, uh, and they give you two options for payment. You can pay it out of your own money or because the extra money went into super, you can have it paid from super. Oh, that seems so fair. So it's fair. So the net result is you so don't it's not have... really a penalty. So there's no penalty at all. The only, uh, the only loss of benefit for you is you've got more money in super uh, that you didn't get an extra tax deduction on. Mm. Yeah. So it's not really a loss, but depending on your circumstances. Does, does that surplus count towards the non-concessional contribution cap? Um, I don't know, Joel. <laughs> I, I actually don't know there. Uh, I think there is an extent to which they, that's a really good so question. Are there I'm different contribution caps, a concessional and a non-concessional? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So non-concessional is when you put uh, after-tax money into superannuation and there's no tax deduction. Right. So if you want to get lots of money into super, uh, you can do it by way of a non-concessional contribution, which has a, a separate cap of $100,000. Ah, right. Now, Joel, if the cap doesn't apply, uh, on that surplus, well, maybe there's a bit of a planning opportunity around that. Mm. Maybe we can maybe we'll come back and the caps. answer that. I mean, but I would doubt it. I'm sure there's a loophole. If there is a loophole, they'll they'll find a way to close it. 
I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, let's. If if you're in that situation, contact UGC. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that question if it's relevant to you. Yeah. That's a good one, Joel. Uh, so that's the planning opportunity. Use a super contribution to get a tax deduction and increase the amount of your tax return. This year for the first time, there's one additional consideration. Uh, this is the first year where anything you don't contribute up to 25,000 gets carried forward. Okay, that's okay. only just starting. So that's only just starting now. Right. So next year, next financial year is the first year that you can contribute up to the cap of 25000 plus any unused cap from last year. And how many years will they carry it forward? Uh, it's, uh, well, it's phasing in. Phasing, okay. So next year, it'll be only this year. Yep. The year after, it'll be this year, next year, and that year. And the year after that, it will be this year, next year, the next year, and that year. Okay. So it's going to get to a period of five years. Five years. That's right. right. So if you're increasing your earnings over a period of time and you weren't able to contribute in the early stages, you could yep. make up for all of that. That's right. Towards the end of that five-year Correct. Period. So That's a good idea. this financial year, if you don't use this financial year's cap, you've actually got five years to use it now. Oh, that's, that's yeah. a good incentive. Yep. So, don't fret if you miss out, because you've always got next year, mm. and this creates a bit of a planning opportunity for people who know that their income will increase, uh, or their tax, their, their total tax will increase because of something else, like maybe they're going to sell a property in a future year. You could actually use the super contributions to offset your income to change your total tax position. And maybe in the year that you sell a property, you could end up with the ability to contribute, say, 60000 80000 into super uh, and claim a tax deduction on the full amount, which reduces uh, your income tax, which therefore lessens the capital gains tax on top of it. I could also see circumstances where you know parents might have children going to school with high school fees that are going to end in the next year or two. They could say, okay, well, we'll, we'll need all the cash we can to pay those, but Absolutely. in two years we'll be able to make all that up because yep. we won't have that outgoing. Yep. That's right. Mm. Yeah, it definitely changes the planning considerations, but it's only for people with a total superannuation balance of less than 500000 Ah, oh, there's another catch. Okay, so there is a catch. That's right. And they do have to restrict these things because it's been well known for, for some time uh, that superannuation concessions, uh, as I introduced, are the number three and four costs as far as tax concessions go. In fact, superannuation tax concessions uh, as lost revenue are more expensive than the Centrelink age pension, disability pension and these other things. Right. So that's why, uh, and the superannuation tax concessions are very much taken advantage of by the higher income earners. Yeah. 80% of the tax concessions go to the top, I actually think it's the top 10% of earners. So as far as the government's uh, actual objective to reduce the burden on the age pension, a lot of these superannuation tax concessions are going to people that would have never been on the age pension anyway. anyway. Yep. So that's where uh, both sides of the government, if you recall the budget a few years ago, the, the Liberal government put out a budget which, um, which the media called a Labor 
budget because of the way the, uh, in large part because of the way the superannuation tax concessions were targeted. Mm. Uh, so it, this rule does only apply to total super balances of under 500,000. All right, it makes sense. Very good. Louis, just circling back to that uh, question that we had around excess contributions. You got so an answer? I do have an answer. Uh, yes, the contributions do count towards the uh, non-concessional contribution cap of $100,000 if you don't withdraw those uh, excess out. If you go over the non-concessional contribution cap, and that could happen because you push yourself mm. over the concessional contribution cap, then the excess contributions can also stay inside the super fund, but will have a 47% tax levied on them. Right, Ow. so that could be a penalty. Yeah. Okay, okay. So you breach the uh, $25,000 cap, and there's extra taxes, but no more than you would have paid anyway. You breach the non-concessional cap, and they're would be penalty tax. But That's the non-concessional right. cap was 100000 you said? 100000 for the year. Yeah. Yep. Or so you could choose to evoke the bring forward rule and, and not um, not have that uh, tax applied. If, yep. if you've got the ability to put 100000 into super in a year, chances are you're at that high tax rate anyway. Probably. Uh, probably, but not necessarily. A yep. lot of the time it, it comes from a uh, from the downsize of a house. Or an inheritance. Or an inheritance or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yep. yep. So yes, often, but not necessarily. Yeah. Okay, yep. so good. so that's what I had to say on superannuation contributions as a tax saving strategy. Now, Louis, um, uh, just on that, uh, while superannuation is one of the key planning opportunities that we look at, uh, it's not the only opportunity as well, is it? We can look at how we can bring forward expenses in in uh, future years to offset gains, the lumpy gains in, in the current year. Yep. We can also look at uh, offsetting capital losses against capital gains and maybe we sell some dog shares that you might have in your portfolio to offset yep. some of the... Can you buy shares in a dog? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they'll probably go down. Might have a new part yep. of that Labrador. That's, that's why they're called dog shares. <laughs> so we can, uh, we can do a whole range of different things uh, around tax time. Um, mm-hmm. Superannuation being one of the big ones. Uh, but if you're also looking for other avenues to perhaps um, uh, get a little bit of a broader context as to what might be done, do speak to your advisor because uh, the, the gains or the uh, tax saved can be significant. Uh, do speak to your advisor, but I'm going to put those things in a few categories. If you're going to reduce tax, uh, there's super contributions, there's expenses you can bring forward in relation to your job, but outside of that, you have to already be an investor or a business owner. Mm. So if you're not already an investor, then, well, it's a bit too late to get more tax deductions. Mm. And that's why uh, by the time the end of the financial year comes and people start coming out of the woodwork, how can I reduce my tax? Well, speak to me in July yeah. about setting up your investments for the whole financial year. Yeah. And then come June next year, then we can take advantage of, of the extra tax savings that come from it. Absolutely. We're playing the long game with money. Correct. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. So uh, so that's what I'd say on that. Love it. All right. Very good. Uh, so, Brett, one more segment for the day. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. Ah, yes. Brett, you're the king of this segment. What do you have for us this week? Oh, well, I'll, I'll take that title and, yes, I'll kick it off. <laughs> uh, I'm going to circle back around to a topic we have mentioned before. Remember those, those pilots that got up to a bit of mischief and drew a penis in the sky. <laughs> How could we forget? How could we forget? Well, apparently uh, there was an investigation into the incident and it has now been published explaining exactly what happened. 
well. And, and, Does it need an explanation? Uh, well, actually, the explanation is, and I'm sure we, we'd all probably agree, that it was uh, basically just a bunch of boys having a laugh. <laughs> that is the outcome. But the parts I thought were quite funny in this was... Um, Which parts specifically, Brett? Well, th- there's a few parts that they drew. <laughs> but the, uh, the commentary that they investigated was... Uh, so obviously they had a recording of the audio between the three different people in the plane. <laughs> So the first part was um, that uh, there's a, a person in the jump. So there's the uh, electronic warfare officer, nice title, the okay. pilot and the co-pilot. And it all started when the co-pilot says, draw a giant penis, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other person goes, oh, yeah, you should totally draw a penis. <laughs> and then the pilot starts buying into it and going, I could definitely draw one. That would be easy. I could basically draw a figure eight, turn around and come back. I'm going to draw one, grab some speed and hopefully get out of the contrail air so they're connected to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and on it goes. So, yeah, dude, that would be so funny. We could almost draw a vein in the middle of it too. Oh, oh no, come on. Wow, so descriptive. <laughs> and there's more it. and more. But anyway, yeah. at the end of it, it's even, in, even when they're in control of million-dollar toys, it appears boys will still be boys. <laughs> Jeez. Nice work, nice work. Joel? Yeah, so a a police officer in Lincoln, Nebraska, has told a story about uh, Mark L. Towner, 26-year-old out of uh, of Lincoln, Nebraska, who had uh, got himself into all sorts of trouble by being a nasty person and uh, decided that he would try and lie to the police when they caught him. Albeit, he didn't take his name tag off that was hanging around his neck after coming home from work. Wow. Well, small justice. So that's something. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and a real idiot in a number of ways there. Uh, so imagine coming home with your young son, five-year-old son, uh, to find the back door of your house is wide open. And, mm. and you think, well, someone's been in my house. Yeah. Uh, well, that's exactly what was found by, by someone. And very scared to go through the house... What's that smell? Oh. It smells pretty clean in here. What? This is odd. Well, nothing's been stolen. <laughs> Everything's very tidy. Oh, my bathroom's been cleaned. What's going my, on? My bedroom's been vacuumed. <laughs> and they sus- and, and nothing had been stolen. So the suspicion was is that someone's uh, come to do a cleaning job at the wrong to the house. wrong house, <laughs> managed to force their way in because they really wanted to do a good job and they cleaned everything up. Uh, can and that person, please call in. I'll give you my address. <laughs> <off there. laughs> That's right. And uh, the, the, the final cherry that cemented the theory was when they found that the toilet paper roll had been folded <laughs> into origami like roses. Oh, nice touch. Beautiful. <laughs> a pleasant but unpleasant surprise. <laughs> so there you go. The cleaning there burger. You go. Yeah. That's right. Uh, thanks for joining us again, listeners. We'll be back with another episode next week. Uh, join us again then. Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to this week's episode of The Investor Exchange. To access this episode's show notes, go to theinvestorexchange.com.au and follow us on Facebook at The Investor Exchange for updates on our latest episodes. This show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Before making any investment decision, contact United Global Capital by emailing ugc.net.au for a personalised, no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Or alternatively, email us at info at ugc.net.au.